Today, November 19th, is International Men's Day. And we here at the Foreign Desk simply do not care. This is a statement uttered entirely sincerely by this presenter. Neither Emma nor Christie, who produce this show every week, are holding a gun to my head. I realise this is exactly the kind of thing I might say if they were. Listeners will have to take my word for it. The current International Men's Day was inaugurated in 1999 and doubtless means well. It absolutely was not designed to placate the whining, self-pitying bores who had been wanging on for decades about the alleged enraging unfairness of there being an International Women's Day, which has been a thing since 1909. But any gesture towards observing International Men's Day nevertheless feels like more of a concession to these dreary weirdos than this programme wishes to make. For this reason and others, the Foreign Desk is devoting this, its International Men's Day edition, to women, specifically to the subject of women in national and international politics, proceeding on the belief that there should be more of them. Men have had a pretty decent run at governance, diplomacy and foreign policy this last all of human history or so, and the results can be fairly estimated as mixed. Why aren't there more women in politics? How can more women be encouraged to go into politics? And what difference might it make if they did? This is The Foreign Desk. I was offended too by the sexism, by the misogyny of the Leader of the Opposition catcalling across this table at me as I sit here as Prime Minister. If the Prime Minister wants to, politically speaking, make an honest woman of herself, something that would never have been said to any man sitting in this chair. We are still living with a double standard, and I know it. Every woman I know knows it, and I don't know anything other to do than just keep forging through it and just taking the slings and arrows that come with being a woman in the arena. Liberia has a history of women leadership, so those role models have always been there and so many other women have accomplished so much. Right now it's an issue of how do we get them into political leadership role and they face the same constraints women face everywhere. I'm the Prime Minister of New Zealand and I am among only 5% of world leaders who are women. And yet my leadership in New Zealand is not unusual. In many ways, that probably contributed to the fact that as a young woman, I did not question whether or not my gender would get in the way of me following my dreams and my aspirations. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we will be speaking to Tony Blair's former Director of Communications and to Iceland's Foreign Minister. But I'm joined, first of all, by Dr Merrill Kenny, Senior Lecturer in Gender and Politics at the University of Edinburgh. Merrill, first of all, the big obvious question, why aren't there more women in politics even now? I think when we usually talk about barriers to women's representation in politics, we tend to talk about push and pull factors. So what are the kinds of things that make women run for office? And there we might see inequalities around kind of the money and the time and the resources that it might take to want to pursue a political career, plus all of the things we know around social media and backlash and attacks against certain politicians. And then on the pull side, it's also how 
political parties select candidates? What kind of candidates do they want and where do they place them, right? Are they in seats that they can actually win? And I think what the research shows is that one of the main barriers to women's representation is parties don't select enough women and they don't select them for seats that they can actually win. To go back to that aspect you mentioned of social media and media treatment backlashes against, is it still a thing that women are just held to a different standard, even in countries which like to think of themselves as advanced liberal democracies that are all aboard for equality? By which I guess I'm asking, is it imaginable that any democracy in 2022 would elect to lead it a woman with a personal life comparable to Donald Trump's or Boris Johnson's? I mean, certainly I think you see a double standard. It's the kind of double bind that these are institutions that have been ruled by men for majority groups for centuries, right? So that shapes what we think a politician is. And it means that women candidates both have to live up to the kind of masculine expectations of office, but they also have to prove that they're feminine enough, right? They have to manage their femininity. They can't be too emotional. They can't be too cold. So certainly I think Trump's a good example, but Hillary Clinton was this kind of damn damned if you do, damned if you don't paradox, which was she either was competent or unlikable, right? And she could never really bridge that divide. Have we learned anything, though, about what does actually work in including more women in politics? Is it, for example, a matter of parties ensuring that all women shortlists are put up for those safe seats you mentioned? I mean, there's lots of different things parties can do and lots of parties or kind of nonpartisan groups have things like training sessions or financial assistance for certain types of candidates that have been underrepresented. But the big thing, as you've said there, the thing that has the biggest impact on increases in women's representation are strong equality measures like gender quotas. So measures that require political parties to select or elect a certain percentage of female candidates. But those also have to be measures with teeth, be enforced. Usually that's with sanctions if parties don't comply, and that might be financial or being disqualified from running. But certainly globally and also in the UK, we've seen the huge impact of those kinds of measures. For all those obstacles and barriers that you mentioned, which do undoubtedly exist and do make it incredibly difficult for women to get into politics and get ahead in politics, we do now have a reasonable sample size of women occupying elected office and indeed occupying the highest elected offices. And from that sample, is it possible to generalise that there is or is not anything to the idea that women do fundamentally lead differently? The evidence is mixed. And part of that reflects how women get to the top. Oftentimes, women come in after big crises, right, to clean up the mess. So electoral (laughs) defeats or party leadership crises or things like this, right? So it's this kind of moment of crisis where women get in. And that also means that they can't necessarily act in the same ways as male counterparts. Often it's a case of keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. They tend to have shorter tenures. They tend to be kicked out earlier than male politicians, precisely because of some of the ways that women come to power. And also having women in politics doesn't mean that they will act necessarily for women's interests. So it's a complex question, I think. And there's mixed evidence, but there is some evidence that having women at the top does make a difference in terms of ways of working and policy priorities for parliaments, for example. There is some evidence, for example, some of the Scandinavian parliaments, etc., that having more gender balanced parliaments makes differences to how you conduct debate, perhaps in more collaborative or consensual ways, to the kinds of policies you might have in parliament 
parliament itself as a workplace, for example, around maternity, paternity leave, around breastfeeding in the chamber, around family friendly hours, and that those kinds of things can make a big difference. I think not only to whether politicians want to stay in those institutions, but also how the public perceives them as kind of modern, relevant democratic institutions. There's another common supposition about female leadership, which you will be well aware of, and it is obviously rooted in certain gender stereotypes. But is there anything to the idea that women, when they are in a position of leadership, have a different approach to conflict than men, that either they conduct it in a different kind of way or that they're better at avoiding it? I think we again can see different styles of leadership. I'd Mm. hesitate to say that all women act a particular way and all men another, because of course we can always think of prominent exceptions. But I think one of the really interesting examples is around COVID and responses to the pandemic, where I do think you saw leaders like in New Zealand and Germany, female leaders carving out different kinds of ways of engaging with the pandemic, more grounded. Jacinda Ardern spoke to children at one point in a kind of national address. You'll be pleased to know um, that we do consider both the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny to be essential workers. But as you can imagine at this time, of course, they're going to be potentially quite busy at home with their family as well and their own bunnies. And so I say to the children of New Zealand, if the Easter Bunny doesn't make it to your household, then we have to understand that it's a bit difficult at the moment for the bunny to perhaps get everywhere. Versus the really kind of more bloviating, kind of very aggressive styles of, for example, a Trump or examples from Brazil elsewhere. So I think there are some examples of different kinds of leadership, but I'd hesitate to say that all women act in a different way. On that subject, you mentioned earlier Hillary Clinton, who, of course, won a popular vote in the US presidential election, but nevertheless did not win the presidential election. If and when that happens and a woman is elected to Earth's most powerful office, even given that any number of democracies around the world have elected at least one female leader by now, will it still be a significant moment when there is a Madam President of the United States? I think it will be a huge moment because the office of the president is so tied up with kind of really masculinized ideas of the commander in chief and really tied up with defense and foreign policy. It really has been a kind of man's terrain, both in terms of who's occupied it, but also how the office has been perceived. And I think looking at Clinton, but also all of the female contenders who ran against Biden, we still see significant obstacles there in terms of who's considered a viable contender and the discourse around likability and who's a likable candidate. So I think it would still be a huge shift in the United States. And it's worth noting that looking at Congress more broadly, levels of women's representation are very low in the US compared to other countries, Mm. including the UK. So there's still a long way to go, I think, in the United States to disrupt some of those ideas about what a political leader is. If we look at that list of countries which have the greatest female representation in Parliament, are there any conclusions we can draw about them? Yeah, so I think if we look at the list of countries that perform well, what we see is the impact of gender quotas. And what we've seen in the last 
couple of decades is a move from a more kind of incremental track of increasing women's representation solely over time to a fast track aimed at getting equality of results. And so what you see is that amongst almost all of the top ranked countries in the world for women's representation, almost all of them use some form of gender quotas. And that ranges from kind of voluntary quotas that are used by particular parties within countries to statutory legislative ones or even ones enshrined in constitutions. Is it also a reasonable conclusion that more generally left-wing countries do better at this sort of thing? Although when we look at the list, there's probably a couple of those parliaments, notably Cuba and Nicaragua, you probably need to put a bit of an asterisk next to. I don't think the evidence is straightforward about, for example, the level of democracy and gender equality and levels of women's representation. And you do see, for example, as you said, some countries that might be more authoritarian or semi-democracies or post-conflict countries that have made big gains in women's representation. You also see around the world, if you think of low levels of women's representation comparatively in countries like the UK or the US or Canada that you might expect to be higher up the rankings, but these are not in the top countries worldwide for women's representation. So there isn't a straightforward relationship here. And what it shows is, is the importance of political will and taking these kinds of reforms seriously. Meryl, thank you. That was Dr. Meryl Kenny, Senior Lecturer in Gender and Politics at the University of Edinburgh. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. It is very clearly the case that in politics, as in most other walks of life, women are held to a different standard than men. It is one thing to make this statement of the obvious, another to have to adjust to it. Our next guest has, over a long career in politics, done the flat-catching and messaging for male and female politicians. Lance Price is a former Director of Communications at Number 10 Downing Street. He is currently Chief of Staff to British MP Kim Leadbeater. Lance, first of all, can you quantify the difference in scrutiny between female politicians versus their male colleagues? Female politicians are undoubtedly treated differently than their male colleagues. They get the same policy questions put to them, the same political issues are put to them, but they're often, and I think very unfairly, also scrutinised for how they dress, what their hair's like, what shoes they're wearing, things that are completely irrelevant to the way in which they do their job. And that applies to female politicians at all levels. It may be in the council chamber locally. It may be on the floor of the House of Commons. It may and certainly is the case when a woman rises to the very top and becomes prime minister. So it's a fact of political life, I'm afraid, in this country and in many other countries, that women do face a different level of scrutiny and the way in which some members of the public, not all, of course, but some members of the public address female politicians can be very, very different to the way in which they approach their male colleagues. In terms of adapting to media scrutiny in particular, then, you've advised female politicians as well as male ones. Are there specific things that work for female politicians when they are confronted by that sort of unfairness? The most important thing, I think, is for them to call it out, but to call it out swiftly and to move on. And if they feel that they're being asked a question or being put under a level of scrutiny that wouldn't apply to a male politician in similar circumstances, they should just say so and then address the serious issue that may lie behind the questions being 
put to them. And I don't think they should have any truck with it, and nor should they try to meet it halfway or play along with it or laugh it off, because it simply isn't acceptable in 2022 United Kingdom. But there is a trap there, though, isn't there? And this is Australia rather than the United Kingdom. But I'm sure many listeners will recall that speech of a few years ago when Australia's then Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, lit into Tony Abbott, who was then leader of the opposition. I was offended too by the sexism, by the misogyny of the leader of the opposition catcalling across this table at me as I sit here as Prime Minister. If the Prime Minister wants to, politically speaking, make an honest woman of herself, something that would never have been said to any man sitting in this chair. Misogyny, sexism, every day from this leader of the opposition, every day in every way across the time the leader of the opposition has sat in that chair and I've sat in this chair. That is all we have heard from him. And the leader of the opposition should think seriously about the role of women in public life and in Australian society, because we are entitled to a better standard than this. And she attracted a great deal of sympathy, and quite rightly, because I think Abbott assuredly had it coming. But she did also attract the criticism from the kind of people who enjoy suggesting that women are inherently more temperamental than men. Once in a while, I think you have to make a very high-profile stand. And I think this is one of those examples, because fortunately, most male politicians aren't like Tony Abbott, and they wouldn't treat female politicians in the way that, from what I could tell, looking at it from the United Kingdom, he used to do and used to revel in doing. So once in a while, you make a big stand of it and you make your point. And if you get flat for it, you get flat for it. That's the price of saying what is right and taking a strong position. But most of the time, as I say, it should simply be dismissed and the politician then just moves on. So it isn't given more credibility than it deserves. Going back to that focus on appearance, and obviously that is incalculably different for male versus female politicians, are there ones you can think of who've actually turned that into an advantage? Well, it's true that women probably have more choice than we men do in terms of what we wear in our professional lives, certainly in and around politics. I mean, most of the women that I encounter in Parliament are smartly dressed, and you would no more comment on how they turn themselves out than you would a man standing next to them. It can, of course, work to a woman's advantage. And if you go back in history, for example, Margaret Thatcher, the United Kingdom's first female Prime Minister, who was iconic in her own way, took a great deal of time and attention over how she looked and how she sounded, the clothes she wore, how her hair was done. And that changed enormously once she became Prime Minister from how she appeared when she was leader of the opposition. I stand before you tonight in my red star chiffon evening gown. softly made up and my fair hair gently waved. (laughs) The Iron Lady of the Western World. And it's quite telling, actually. We've just had another female prime minister. She only lasted 47 days, but she was trying to model herself on Margaret Thatcher in many ways. There are other women politicians who, rather than trying to 
do the female equivalent of looking as smart as you possibly can in a position of authority and seniority within politics, actually say, look, I'm going to do this my way. And if you look on the opposition benches in the House of Commons, the Labour opposition, the deputy leader, Angela Rayner, wears some quite striking clothes and certainly some shoes that raise uh, eyebrows when people look at them. And that's part of her saying, this is who I am. I'll do politics my way. I'll say what I think. I'm blunt speaking. And no one's going to tell me either what to say or indeed how to look. We're obviously a long way from being able to congratulate ourselves on this all being fixed and everything being better. But if you focus on Westminster, which is the environment you've worked in for a long time, is that getting more hospitable than it once was? You you mentioned Margaret Thatcher. When she became Prime Minister in 1979, it is an incredible statistic in that context, there were 19 women sitting in the House of Commons. There are now 225, and surely with that there has come some some sort of change in the culture? There's been a massive change in the culture, absolutely massive. When I first started reporting on politics as a BBC correspondent back in the 1980s, it was an incredibly misogynistic atmosphere. The men ruled the roost, largely the exception of Margaret Thatcher, were in most of the senior positions. When Margaret Thatcher's successor, John Major, formed his first cabinet, there wasn't a single woman in it, not one woman around the cabinet table. And in the bars and the corridors around Westminster, it was a very, very sexist, very unpleasant atmosphere for women to try to work in. That has changed immeasurably. And while women will still find themselves patronised from time to time, looked down upon, largely, to be fair, by men who've been around this place, they've probably passed their sell-by date in all sorts of ways, including their attitude to women. But things have changed enormously, and that's partly because women aren't willing to put up with it anymore and have made a stand, and quite rightly so. But also, to be fair to the younger generation of men who've come into politics, they don't want to do politics that way either. Lance Price, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Iceland has historically been more amenable to women in politics than most countries. Icelandic women, at least Icelandic women over 40, got the vote in 1915, their younger sisters in 1920. In 1980, Iceland became the first country to democratically choose a female head of state, President Vigdis Finnbogadottir, who served for 16 years. In Iceland's current parliament, 30 of its 63 seats are held by women, including those of the Prime Minister, Katrin Jakobsdottir, and our next guest, Iceland's Foreign Minister, Thordis Kolbrun Reykjavik-Gilfadottir, who joins us from Reykjavik. Let's start with Iceland's parliament. It's just under 50% female, which by the standards of the world at large is quite high. Is there an easy way to explain how that has been accomplished? It's many things. No one magical solution or magical puzzle, but I would argue that it may be because the women of Iceland always approach their demands from equality, from a position of strength and self-confidence. The road has been long and it wasn't easy and it hasn't been easy and I'm sure it hasn't been as easy as it might look. But there were two very important characteristics of struggle at the beginning that may not have been in place in many other societies. So one 
was that women were able to form a very strong alliance across the political spectrum and across all social divides that mounted a strong campaign for changes at all levels of society. And the activism resulted in the country's largest political rally, the Women's Day Off in 1975. I'm sure you've seen some pictures of that day. And that had, without a doubt, a deciding influence on the election of the first woman president in Iceland five years later, in 1980. And the decision of the Women Alliance to run in the municipal election in 1982 and then in parliament election in 1983. So both of these were important because the women were not asking for permission. They were not asking the men to be allowed to join the table. Rather, they were establishing their rights through their own strength. And through this strength, two things happened. First, we got inspiring role models. My grandmother was one of them, founding member of the Women's Alliance, feminist political party. And Vigdís Finnbogadóttir became the world's first woman to be democratically elected as president in the year 1980. So I would argue that role models are extremely important. And this means that girls like me, I mean, I was just used to watching women being in a position of power when they grew up. Uh, but not less importantly, the boys were also used to that fact, to seeing powerful and respected women in television, for example. And this means that later in life, strong men are comfortable working with and working for women. And then second, having more women entering political changes, a political agenda, paving the way for gender equality issues become, to become political issues. And in my view, the single most important thing we have done in Iceland may have been the universal childcare. We have kindergarten for everyone, available and accessible for all children. And this has been extremely empowering for women who could you know, educate themselves, like we can in many other European countries, but then have kids and continue joining the workforce and the labor market on their own terms. So it's both the fact that it's accessible and women are capable, but it also has a huge effect on the mindset. So it is looked as a natural thing that both men and women enter the labor force and a woman doesn't have to choose whether she's going to you know, have a family or be strong in the workforce. Have there ever been any specific programmes intended to bring more women into Icelandic politics? Any parties ever operated gender quotas or anything like that? Some political parties have gender quotas for themselves, absolutely. My party hasn't done that ever. We have also quotas for within the companies in a certain mechanism. We have parental leave, which has been generous, and now both parents can take that, so... That also has the effect that the fathers can take it. And it also has the effect that the mindset changes, that it becomes natural and normal that men do it. So it's many puzzles that all together create this image. We still have a long way to go. I mean, in Iceland, it's the vast majority of men that control the money, for example. And whether you like it or not, with money comes power. So... We still have a long way to go, but we have had many puzzles and it has been different between sectors, between parties, the way we reached this, but now it has totally become a mainstream opinion. You mentioned earlier that the representation of women in Icelandic politics has had a 
Well, it's had an effect on policy in creating those policies and those circumstances which make it easier for women to participate in politics and other careers as well. But do you think it makes any difference to the way that politics is conducted if there's more women involved? I mean, I'm sure you've heard this before, that there is this rather cliched conventional wisdom at large that if more women are involved in politics, then it's less confrontational, it's less vicious, it's less nasty. Do you subscribe to that idea? I would argue that in general, when you have more diversified group of people in a decision making, you would get a better outcome. I would argue that women in general, they approach certain things in a different manner. And then if that's something natural or because of the society, I wouldn't trust myself to draw the line there. And I think nobody can, and I'm certainly not the person to do so. But I would argue that women definitely approach some issues in a different manner. But when we we now have a much more diverse set of people with the inclusion of women leaders being the most obvious, and one can have a hope that this change will give humanity a better chance of avoiding future catastrophes. And I think many of us have the feeling that when it comes to terrible decisions, like, for example, launching a very senseless and brutal war, women's leader would be less likely to do so. And it seems unthinkable to me that any woman leader would encourage the sort of war of destruction only for the purpose of self-glorification that Putin has led his country into. But of course, that would apply to any civilized person, regardless of gender. But the real problem is that even women have a very good chance of getting into powerful position in some countries, We still have many countries, even countries that Iceland considers like-minded when it comes to fundamental values, where women are still very marginalized and have no real chance to influence domestic politics unless they play uh, very junior partners to male politicians. When you think about those other countries which don't have as great a gender balance as we might wish for, are there any examples from the Icelandic model which can be exported or which other countries could be adopting? The universal childcare is, in my personal opinion, the biggest puzzle because it really gives a certain freedom for the women in the house. It's an extremely empowering puzzle for women and for the family to have the right to choose how they plan their day-to-day life as a family. And also because it makes it possible, but not least that it changes the mindset. You have a woman that has a family and a career, and the general mindset is that, you know, that's okay, that's good, it's good for the economy, it's good for the society, it's good for the young men, it's good for the young women or girls. It's a stronger society that allows free individuals to make decisions on their own. And if you have a society where, you know, people have children and raise a family, I would argue that adopting that kind of mechanism where universal childcare is really accessible for everyone, I would argue that that's the single most important thing. Maybe also the discussion on, you know, it's not a matter of When women take the power, they're taking it from someone else. I mean, there is room for many strong individuals. Because sometimes you hear that, you know, when women get strong, the men get weaker. That's a big misunderstanding. Because with strong women, you get stronger men. And you get stronger boys and girls and just individuals, from young individuals to adults. 
Just finally then, Iceland is especially unusual in that its prime minister and its foreign minister are both women. So that is how Iceland projects itself abroad. Do you think a country, when it has more women in senior leadership roles, is seen differently in the world? That's my feeling. And I, and I can notice, especially when we're together, the prime minister and I abroad, that people notice and it's a reflection of us because gender equality is a cornerstone of our foreign policy. And we walk the talk. And that's very important to be credible. You have to walk the talk. And for me, I think it's also important to use that empowerment. And for me, because it's not only that I'm a woman and we're, sometimes we're not that many, but it's also, you know, I'm young. I just turned 35. And since I took office, Almost one year ago, I have been just aware of the fact that I'm almost always the youngest person in the room. So I find myself also thinking quite a bit about the fact that my responsibility is not least to be a voice of the generation that many others around the table only know through their children or grandchildren. And, you know, in my case, that's something that you kind of have to understand and then use that as an empowerment for the cause, for us to try to make the right decisions, which is more likely what's going to happen if you have more diversified group in gender, in age and others. That was Iceland's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Thordis Kolbrun Rikford Gilfordotir, joining us from Reykjavik. And that's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye and happy International Men's Day. Thank you.